We thank you for the obedience of the Son to go to the point of death, even death on the cross, to be humiliated, to be killed on our account. We thank you that the Lord was obedient to your will and that now as he has ascended, the Spirit of God has come, has convicted us as believers, has given us the faith to believe that we might receive the sacrifice that was done by your Son. And we thank you that he indeed wears the victor's crown. And as such, as we are in him, as Revelation says over and over again, that we will, become, we will be overcomers. That we are in this world, but not part of it. That we will overcome the world. We will overcome all the things that come against us as we walk with you. We thank you for the power of the Spirit in our lives. We thank you that as we have been sealed by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, that we can also be filled and empowered and controlled by the Spirit. And we ask that now as we get into your word, that your Spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds, show us truths that we need to live by. And Father, we ask that as believers you would prepare our hearts as we come before the Lord's table, that we would come in a worthy manner. Uh, Please help us to evaluate and analyze our lives. And yet we know that sin is deceptive. The old man is deceptive. It's deceitful. And Lord, we need your understanding in our hearts. We need your knowledge. We, we need you to reveal to us what needs to change. And we just ask that your spirit would do that. And Father, if there's anyone here perhaps religious and yet not truly saved, that they might understand their need for the Lord, for his sacrifice, and receive him today so that they also might have their sins forgiven and be made part of your family. We just ask for your direction now for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Revelation, again, chapter 1. Whereas I just read Philippians chapter 2, God has highly exalted him. The exaltation of Christ is really seen as like, as it were, a full commentary in the book of Revelation, right? What was promised in Philippians is accomplished in Revelation. What do you mean highly exalted? We're going to be studying about Christ highly exalted. All the different pieces coming together. So really, Revelation is an explanation, a full commentary, a a true revealing of what was spoken of in Philippians chapter 2. I'd like to read verses 1 to 6 in chapter 1. Revelation 1, 1 to 6. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, 
for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, as we approach these first few verses in Revelation, as the, uh, as the heading of the outline goes, we're going back to the future. We're going back to the time when John saw the future. And we're going to unfold it. But these first few verses are basically groundwork, the prologue, the, the foundation of the book. We're finding out things about the book that we need to know so that we can then um, understand the book properly. See, if we didn't have these first six verses, we would approach the book simply as a prophecy. But we wouldn't understand the ramifications, how it all points to Jesus Christ. Okay, We need these first six verses. We need to spend some time on these so we get it solid in our mind. Let me just review a few things. Again, these, these are all aspects of the revelation. Notice, by the way, it's the revelation singular, not plural. Sometimes people think... The revelations, no, no, revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, that's the essential nature. That's the central theme. The revealing of Jesus Christ. That's the central theme. That's the main theme. Jesus Christ is the main theme. It's not about the churches. It's not about heaven. It's not about the Antichrist. It's not about the tribulation. It's not even about heaven. The main theme is how it all is being accomplished through Jesus Christ. So it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, again, which God gave him. That's the source, the divine source. And again, why did, why did God give him this? Because he was obedient even to the point of death, the death on the cross. Again, to show his servants, second part or last part of verse 1, to show his servants. Now again, notice that the servants there is not singular, it's plural. He's not talking about, I mean, if he had said to his servant, he, he might be referring to John. He's talking about servants. Who's that? Us. To, by the way, the word servant there is doulos. It's uh, the word slave. Again, he wanted to tell us, his slaves, but no, we are more than his slaves. Because we have been brought in, in, uh, into this relationship, we are part of his family, we are sons, God, uh, it says in Hebrews that Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. We are brothers. We are sons of God. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But for this purpose, the beloved recipients are to show his servants, us, the things that must shortly take place. And the word shortly, and we'll be seeing this more as we move through the book, is, is the idea is imminent. Not short. Time-wise, imminent, like at any moment. At any moment. Shortly take place. And he sent it and signified it by his angel. That's the supernatural delivery. That's the chain of communication. Notice the chain of communication. God gave to Jesus, who gave to the angel, who gave to John the apostle, who gave it to us, his servants. That's the chain of communication there. And, by the way, we're going to learn a lot about angels. That's not the purpose of the book, but 
one out of four times that angels are mentioned in the book, in the whole book, 66 books of the Bible, one fourth of the time it's in the book of Revelation. Uh, the book, a- angels is, is referenced 71 times out of like 280 some total times in the whole book, in the whole Bible. So again, we're going to learn a lot about angels, but that's not the main purpose. We want to learn a whole lot about Jesus Christ. That's the main purpose. To his servant John. Again, John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, brother of James, one of the sons of thunder. Uh, John, who wanted to be called the greatest. Or not called the greatest, one of the greatest. Sit on the right, sit on the left. Can can I ask, you know, um, one who, who wanted to be promoted. This John, that's who we're talking about. It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, he never directly refers to himself, and yet in the book of Revelation, at least five times he does. And, in verse 9, it says, I, John. Like, I can't believe it. Like, like almost stammering, I, John, have been able to receive this glimpse of our Lord. I, John. The enormity of the vision John received on that barren island staggered him. And what you see, I think, in just that I, John, is how God has worked in his life from wanting to sit on the right and left to now, man, you know, he's just a humble servant. By the way, that's what that word, to his servant John, servant, doulos. There again, that same word as servants beforehand. In other words, John just saw himself as a slave of Christ. I, John, I got the glimpse. And I say glimpse because even, I mean, if, you know, like the end of uh, uh, Gospel of John, I mean, uh, of all the things that the Lord has done and, and who he is could not be contained in books, we just have a glimpse of all the glory of Christ. But John says, I, John, I mean, I, I was the one that had the privilege of being able to receive an understanding and be able to pass it on to his servants. But notice this, it says, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. And again, he was a witness to the, the testimony. And those words, witness and testimony, ultimately, martos, um, because so many died for the testimony of Jesus Christ, so many witnessed to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Martos, what does that sound like to you? Martos. Martyr, they would ultimately end in death. They would be martyred, and so the word of t- the word testimony or or the word witness um, came to mean the, what our word martyr. And, and that, by the way, just reminds us that when we walk with Jesus Christ, it's not going to be easy on this world. In this world, right? We're not of this world. What did Jesus tell his disciples? The world is going to hate you. And after they hate you, they despise you, they talk about you, they throw things at you, and ultimately they might kill you. But I think John wants to make it clear, who bore witness to the word and to the testimony of Jesus to all things that he saw. So again, he's testifying. And again, the the, the book of Revelation is a great blessing. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. 
The book starts with a blessing in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, and in chapter 22, it ends with a blessing. So again, it starts with a blessing in 22.7, it says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of, this, of the prophecy of this book. It's a book of blessing. By the way, a book of blessing, not to the world, but to his own, his servants. This is a book of blessing to his servants. When I say this, I'm saying the book of Revelation is a blessing to his slaves, to his sons, to his daughters, to his joint heirs, to his brethren. This is a blessing. Again, as we study prophecy, as we looked at a few weeks ago, when you study prophecy, there should, there should be a number of things that it does in your soul. It should exalt Christ in your soul. It should inspire confidence in, the God, in, the, in God and the God of the Scriptures. Not only in, in God himself, but the, in, but the Scriptures that he has given. It should, it should uh, give us comfort. It should give us conviction. Uh, we purify ourselves even as he is pure. It gives us cleansing. It gives us a consistency of life, abounding always in the work of the Lord. What? It gives us energy. It gives us you know, motivation to, to do the right things, to do the priority things from God's point of view. The book of Revelation is a tremendous blessing to the, the Christian because it gives us our right priorities and we live according to them. It gives us stability. I mean, it just gives us all kinds. That's why he says, blessed is he who reads. By the way, look at isn't that interesting? He who reads, that's singular, and those who hear, that's plural. What is he talking about? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And again, it's going from reading to hearing. Reading means to read with understanding, hearing with understanding, and then obviously to keep it. So as we understand what the Word of God says, we seek to live according to its principles. Example, if it says that in the end it all burns like Peter says, well then how ought your life to be, right? We should align our lives to saying, you know what, everything I see is going to burn someday. Let me live according to God's priorities. I see that in the end there's a first and second resurrection. I want to make sure I'm, I'm of those that are of the blessed, that have everlasting life. You know, you live your life according to the truths found in the scriptures. But notice the singular and plural. Uh, Robert Thomas, a professor at Masters College, says this. It depicts, again, this singular plural. It depicts a first century service. That's what he's depicting. One who reads, many who hear. It was a common practice when the church gathered for one person to read the scriptures aloud for all to hear. You see that in 1 Timothy 4.13. Because writing, material, writing materials were expensive and scarce, so were copies of the books that were parts of the biblical canon. As a rule, one copy, now catch this, as a rule, one copy per Christian assembly was the best that could be hoped for. Public reading was the only means that rank-and-file Christians had for the, becoming familiar with the contents of these books. End quote. What he's saying is this. We would get together if we were in the first century and one of us would bring the book. Now think about this. You don't have a book. You don't have a Bible. There'd only be one of us that would have the Bible. And it would only probably be a piece. And that person would read. By the way, we'd all stand because we were like, like 
Like we have the word of God. And then it would be expounded on. Then I might give it to Ed and then he would read. And we would stand. I mean, I felt like kissing the book when I started. I mean, when I, right? And I don't mean as an idolater. I'm saying, aren't you glad that you have the word of God? Aren't you absolutely phenomenally glad that you have the Word of God? Even now, I mean, you go to China, there's, there's areas, you go to North Korea, you go to a lot of different areas, and they don't have the Word of God. Or if they do, it is only a piece. I, I trust that you are very, very grateful, very, very thankful, and show your gratefulness by actually getting into it, by reading it, by studying it, by obeying it, right? I mean, do not take for granted. There may be a day there that you won't have this privilege, but we do now, right? I mean, it's unfortunate that we just, you know, I, I think how many Bibles I have. And sometimes the familiarity just, you know, breeds contempt, right? I mean, like, you just don't, like, you know, that's what saddens me when I, you know, on Monday morning, sometimes I find Bibles around the church. What's really sad is when those same Bibles are there, like, three months later. Well, I understand many of us have multiple Bibles, but, you know, again, can you imagine first century, Right? Coming to do exactly what this is. See, if I'm going to be blessed, what is it? I got to hear the word and I got to keep those things that are written in it. So I trust that you are making a priority of the word of God. Let's look at the persuasive urgency for the time is near. Again, it's just falling back to verse 1 the imminence. He's just emphasizing it's imminent. These things are going to happen and it's going to happen without warning. It hasn't happened yet. I want to emphasize it did not happen. These things in the book of Revelation did not happen A.D. 70. It did not. That was the destruction of Jerusalem. This is not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. This is talking about the destruction of the world. Big difference. But there's an urgency. And then in verse 4, he gives a blessing. He gives a blessing. John writes down the blessing. It's a Trinitarian blessing. There's a greeting and then there's the source. First of all, the address, the greeting. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. This is, keep it right there. To the seven churches. By the way, why seven? Remember, John was ministering in that area. He knew these churches. Maybe that's why seven were, that's why the Lord gave him seven. Most likely also because seven is the, is the number of completeness. What we're going to find in the seven churches is uh, you can find yourself as a church in the seven churches. And so I think it's just a, a, a broad a splattering of uh, the issues the, that need to be addressed to all churches of all ages. By the way, there was more than seven churches. There wasn't just seven, but there are seven specific ones that he points out to the seven churches again in Asia. But notice this, grace to you and peace from him. Grace and peace, grace and peace. Again, words that we we find often in the start of a New Testament letter. Uh, Grace is charis. It's a Christianized form, by the way. That was a a familiar uh, address, you know, grace. I mean, that was used of Greeks. But when it comes to Christianity, this is what it's referring to. I mean, it, it, it's, it's got a Christianized form. In other words, Paul borrowed it, used it over and over again, because for the Christian, it means the favor of God that has been freely bestowed upon us, though we did not deserve it. <laughs> 
Grace has been given. Something has been given that we do not deserve. We deserve damnation. But God has given us grace. We don't deserve the favor of God. We don't deserve to have our sins forgiven. We don't deserve to be placed in the family of God and the wonderful spirit in our life. We don't deserve any of that. By the way, that's what we do as we come before the Lord's table. We remember all that he's done for us and all that we don't deserve. And hopefully our hearts are just overflowing. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in our lives. Hopefully we don't come with... By the way, that is why it is so horrendous to come with sin in our life in an unworthy manner. So grace, again, that, that word is used over and over, not only as greeting, but obviously throughout Scripture. And then peace. Peace has to do with safety and security and harmony and tranquility between two parties. Peace. Uh, the Hebrew counterpart is shalom. Common greeting. Peace. Peace be with you. Peace, my brethren. But again, when it comes to Christianity, it means that we have peace with God. There's no longer, uh, He's no longer our enemy, or no longer are we His enemy. In fact, Romans 5.1 says, Having been justified, that's declared righteous, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we can have peace. There's no longer that animosity in our relationship that, that where we want to, uh, we are against, we're no longer against God. He, is, he has rescued us. He is, and so we have grace, something we don't deserve, and because of that grace we have peace. A person can experience and know uh, this peace through the sacrifice of Christ. Do you have peace with God? Do you really have peace I mean, we can have peace with God and we can have the peace of God. You can have be, we can be at peace with God as far as the sacrifice of Christ, but do you have the peace of God? You really have the peace. That inward tranquility of heart based on spiritual realities, do you have that peace? In other words, not just the fact of the peace with God, but that I am walking with Jesus. Because as we come before the table, you, should, you ought to have the peace the peace of God, that, that he is my father, that I am trusting him. By the way, if we don't trust him, not for salvation, just daily life, is that sinful? Is that sinful? Yeah. So again, we should have the peace of God, not just, um, not just the um, peace with God, but the peace of God, like we find in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. So we have the grace and peace, but then we come and we find out the source of this blessing. It's, it's not just from John, it's from, it's from the Trinity. From him who is and was and is to come. Now normally that would refer to Jesus Christ, but later on in the text we find that Jesus is referenced separate. So this is not Christ, this is God the Father. Again, why is the Father referenced here? I mean, it's about the revelation of Jesus Christ. As one said, as one wrote, he says, quote, it shows the close identity of the Son with the Father, that the Son is the representative of the Father. In other words, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I think right at the very beginning of the letter, though Christ is the one uplifted, 
John, God wants us to know through the, the writer John, it's, it's from Him, it's from the Father, from who is <coughs> present, who was past, who is, to, who, who is to come. By the way, God the Father also will be part of eternity. Okay, so again, this is the Father. This is the source of all blessings is the Father. The source of grace and peace is the Father. Why? Because it was the Father's plan that started this whole process. I come to do the will of the Father. So it's because, you know, we obviously worship the Son. I trust that you worship the Father for His plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That's the Father. And then from the seven spirits who are before the throne. Now again, some have said that's angels. But as you study it clearly, the seven is fullness. And I believe very clearly this points to the Spirit of God. Third person, the Trinity. Uh, as a side note, you can look up Isaiah 11.2. Talk about seven energies of the Spirit as it were. Seven being completeness. He is, he is the fullness of the Spirit. The fullness. The Spirit has the fullness. <coughs> and again... Uh, the Spirit, in Hebrews 10.29, is called the Spirit of grace. And it's the Spirit Himself that gives grace. He's the one that empowers us to believe. It is Him that uh, gives us understanding and repentance. It is the Spirit Himself that gives us peace, right? Part of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. So we have... a. Uh, the source of the, the blessing is the Father, is the Spirit. But now, specifically, and this is where we're closed today, is the Son. And you say, are we closing? No, just give me a moment. <laughs> but let's develop this. And from Jesus Christ. So we have the God, Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Trinity. By the way, the Trinity was involved in creation. The Trinity was involved in the producing of the, the Word of God. The, the Trinity was involved in your salvation. That's what, and the Trinity is also involved as far as the end. The, the Trinity works in fellowship. And so we have the Father, Son, and the Spirit from Jesus Christ. It is only fitting that John mentions Christ last and gives us a fuller description of him. Because again, he is the theme of the book. And look at the description that we have. Three specific things. First part of the description is that the faithful witness. <coughs> that word witness is martos. The faithful. The faithful witness. The faithful one who went to die for us. But again, he's referring to the one who always speaks the truth. That's what he means by witness. A faithful witness is one who always speaks and represents truth. That's certainly true of Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth. He's the truth. In chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 14, 3.14, it says, These things says the Amen. The Amen. He's actually called the Amen. The Amen uh, is also translated truly, truly. In other words, he's the true one. Of all the ones that could be called true, he's the truest of the true. Because he always spoke truth. Always spoke truth. But uh, Revelation 3.14, these things says the Amen. The faithful and true witness. That's how he's referred to to that church. Or Revelation 19 verse 11. 
heaven opened, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. To Pilate, Christ said, For this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. He's, he's the true one. And so, I, I believe there's a number of reasons, one of which is this. He, he specifies that as one of his descriptive titles, because he wants to say this. This is the message, this is the blessing, this is the greeting, and everything in this will take place. It's true. This is truth. What you read in Revelation is going to happen because it's from the faithful witness, the one that always speaks the truth. And it's this one who cannot lie, now catch this, who tells us grace to you and peace from him. <laughs> i got to hear this. Lord, i got to know that, I, that you have been gracious to me. I've got to know that, you, that I'm at peace with you because I've received your son. And he's the one that says peace. The Father says peace. The Spirit says peace. The Son who sacrificed himself on our behalf said, no, you can have peace with the Godhead. And, se and second of all, the second title is the firstborn from the dead. The prototokos. It's seen other places in Scripture. Now again, prototokos doesn't mean first in time. Because even when you say first from the dead, chronologically he was not the first one to be raised from the dead. You see times of people being raised from the dead in the Old Testament, like in 1 Kings. And he himself raised others from the dead, like in Mark, Matthew chapter 9. But it's not sequence, it's preeminence. That's the point. He's the first one, the preeminent one, that rose from the dead. And because he rose, this is the point, because he rose from the dead, we can be resurrected someday. That's the whole point. Because he rose, we have hope. We are not living a hopeless life. Because he rose from the dead, we also can and, and be with him. He's the, he's the premier one. Of all who have ever been or ever will be resurrected, he's the first. He's the premier one. And then final title, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. He's the ruler. It depicts Christ as sovereignly, excuse me, absolutely sovereign over the affairs of this world. Because we see later on in chapter 6, he receives the title deed to the world. Well, actually, chapter 5, and I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, and then the scroll is passed and, the, and it's, it's given to the Son, and, and he, he receives the title deed. That's what actually is being opened in the book of Revelation. And so he is the, the first... He's the one who's truth. He's the first to, to rise from the dead in, in, in the sense of premier one, preeminent one. But he's also the ruler. He's the sovereign. He's what we read about in Philippians chapter 2. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, like Revelation 19 verse 16 says. He's the, the king of all kings. He's the, he's the one that's going to be sitting on David's throne. Which, by the way, each one of these three references, the descriptive uh, titles goes back, if you just want to write in Psalms 89. You can find these, these specifically back in Psalms 89. And Psalms 89 is a confirmation of the Davidic throne. So really, each one of these are not just talking about us as believers, but are reference to the Davidic throne, that Jesus, the one that we see in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, ultimately 
The whole book of Revelation is going to work to the point where he is sitting on David's throne. Everything is coming to a conclusion for his glory. And the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the promises he made to Moses and the promises he made to David are all going to be completed. See, he's the faithful and true one. And when it says, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, that's true. By the way, aren't you? If you're a Christian, you're banking your entire hope, your entire eternity on that, right? I mean, I mean, if we're just going through this life and thinking good things, but not really sure if in the end it's all going to work, man, we will be miserable. But we are saying, Lord, you went to the cross. You became my substitute. You died in my place. I have received you and, and substitute for my sin. In other words, you've paid for my sin. And I'm putting my whole complete faith and hope in you. <laughs> it's just you. There's no plan B. And so he says, he tells his, his servants through John, by the way, many of these servants are going to read this book, I'm assuming during the revelation, when it's, they're going to be part of the scenario. Faithful, first from the dead, ruler of all the kings. I mean, can you imagine me in the tribulation? By the way, I believe in the, pre uh, the rapture of the church, and I don't believe if you're a true believer you're going to go through the tribulation, but can you imagine being in the tribulation? Can you imagine the 144,000 Jews who are witnessing in the tribulation and reading and just having to keep their mind and hope, yep, he's coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back. Well, let's, let's end with a glorious doxology. A glorious doxology. And we find this in uh, verse 6. Let's see here. Is that right? Yeah. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's verse 5. And has made us kings and priests, his, his, his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's just look at that last one. This is a glorious doxology. Three different things. First of all, he loved us. <laughs> he loved us. He loved us when we were not lovely. He loved us when we were at enmity with him. He loved us when we were haters of God. He loved us. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to point something out. Some of you have versions that actually says, he, to him who loves us, it's not in the past punctiliar, it's in the present. And actually, I think that reading is better. See, most of the time in uh, Scripture, when it talks about his love for us, it goes back to the point of uh, election or uh, when he was on the cross. Like in 1 John chapter 4, you see this. And it's the heiress, only to say this, heiress was a point in time, a punctiliar, a, a point, a dot, not a all the way, but just a dot in time going back. And, and you see this in, um, in uh, 1 John 4, verse 10. And this, and this is love. Not that, he, that we loved God, but that He loved us, point in time, and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Behold, beloved, 
Uh, God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then in verse 19, we love him because he first, what? Loved us, present. Or excuse me, past, past point. And you see that over and over again in Scripture. Love, past, point in time. I think this is the first time it's used in the present tense. John wants to emphasize, God wants to emphasize, yeah, he loved us for sure. He went to the cross for us. But he continues to love us. If you have a New American Version, that's what it would say. I mean, all right. In, um, when it comes to uh, textual criticism, there's two groups of texts. One is younger, one is older. And the New American is an older family of texts. And, and I'm getting too technical. Only to say this. There's a variant of reading, but I think here he's talking about not just that he loved us, but he continues to love us. I mean, he continues to love us even though we trip and fall into the filth of this world. Have you done that recently? Have you allowed your flesh to take control? Again, remember 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. Right? And to what? Cleanse us. Oh, we're going to see that in a moment. Please. See, some people don't take, I don't know, or they feel guilty, they feel guilty in taking communion. The reason you might feel guilty is because you're not absolutely convinced that he can cleanse you. Now, again, we don't go with a brash attitude. We don't go with an arrogant. But we say humbly, thank you, Jesus, that I can walk with you. That's what the communion's all about. Your sacrifice was sufficient. It, I don't come to the table knowing that I'm worthy because I ran the race well. I come as a beggar, one in need of forgiveness, cleansing, daily cleansing, family cleansing, but we come boldly because, he, his, because of his sacrifice. So he loved us. Here's another difference in translation, depending on whether you have the New King James ESV New America, or, or the New American. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. By the way, John 13, remember when he's talking to Peter, and Peter said, yeah, wash my whole body, and he said, no, no, you don't have to just defeat... He who is bathed need only wash his feet. That's the, the idea is there's a washing. He washed us in his blood. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, Such were some of you, but you were washed. That's an heiress. That's a point of time. You were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified. So we definitely all agree. Do we all agree that Jesus Christ washed us in his own blood? You see that with the, I think it's the martyrs of Revelation 7, that washing of their robes, they wash from their impurity. But, but and I'm, I'm going to just be careful here, but the New American says that he released us. The difference in Greek words between the word washed and released is only one. Just one uh, letter. And again, it seems that this is the clearer understanding here. He has released us from our sins. Well, sure, he has washed us. By the way, either one is correct, right? But I'm trying to make sure we get it straight as far as revelation. He has released us. 
What do you mean He's released us from our sins by His blood? He's, he's released us from our guilt. The picture here is of a slave master and sin had slavery over us and we were bound to sin. And like Romans 6 says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For... Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's Romans 6, 12 to 14. I believe here he's referring, I, again, I think the, the variant reading is correct, and that is he has released us. Yes, we are clean, but he, he has released us. We are no longer under sin because of what he says in the next verse. We, he's released us. By the way, He's washed us, that is for sure. He has released us. The point is, though, he has now brought us into his family. I, I like how uh, one writer writes. He says, we may not always act holy. Again, we've been washed, we've been released, but we don't always act holy. But because of our faith in Christ, we are perfectly holy in God's sight. I want you just to savor this. Just as his child may not always act like his father, he is nonetheless still his son. We are holy in the sense that before God, the righteousness of Christ has been applied and imputed on our behalf through faith. We were made holy through, the sac through his sacrifice and have become those, as Hebrew says, who are sanctified. And then he closes by saying this, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, Hebrews 10. We are as pure as God is pure. Now that's a statement to consider. We are as righteous as Christ is righteous and therefore entitled to be called, as Hebrew says, his brothers. In other words, we are positionally complete in Christ. When we go to the table, let's remember that we have been washed and we have been released from our sins. And I stand there, you stand there, not because you, you did well this week, or you're doing good today. You know, like almost like earning our right to take communion. We should come with an attitude of saying, Lord, I, 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 I couldn't do one thing right, but, but, but for your grace, you've rescued me, you've placed me in your family, given me your spirit, and I stand in your righteousness. I don't stand in my own. By the way, that devotional was a devotional from Strength for Today. Um, in your bulletin on the bottom left page, uh, I left the address there. Now, the reason I say that is this. It's the new year. Have you... Do you get in the Word of God every day? And maybe you say, well, I've been trying to figure out what to do. I gave you that little thought because that's a pretty meaty thought from a very well-known pastor, John MacArthur. But if you were to go to that website, gracetogty.org, go and find that devotional. It's called Strength for the Day. Click it. You can have an email subscription sent to you, by the way, free of charge, every day. It's right there. Email, right there. Meat, not fluff. There's a lot of devotionals. There's nothing more than fluff. Meat, something to chew on. You mean I'm as holy as Christ is holy because I'm in him? Yeah, well, not, I'm, not practically, but positionally I am. That's how God... See, we need the word of God, right? 
So it's just a plug. You know, if you don't have, if you're not in the Word, if you're like wondering, what should I read? What should I do? What? Just email. I mean, unless you don't have a computer. But it goes right to your iPod, right to your iPad, right to whatever. Get into the Word. And finally, He has loved us and He does love us. He has made us clean. He has washed us and released us. I'm going to just add all these together because they're all true statements. And finally, He has made us, as the New American says, to be, to be a kingdom. He has made... And to be priest to his God. That's what Christ has done for us. And again, the new King James says priests, or excuse me, kings. That he's made us kings. Actually, there's nowhere else in scripture. It says that we will rule with Christ, but it doesn't say that we're going to be kings as such. But I believe what he's getting at is, is the new American says, he, that we will be a kingdom. In other words, the believers corporately are a kingdom. And that's exactly what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Remember Colossians 1, 13, it says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, He has delivered us from power of the, of the, of the power of darkness. He has delivered us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He has delivered us from the, the power, the grip of darkness. But then it says this, and has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And that word conveyed was used of kings when they would conquer a land and they would take a whole group of people and say, you're not going to live... By the way, you saw this with the Assyrians. They, would, they took the whole group and they transferred the whole group of people over here and says, this is where you're going to live. And the imagery of Colossians 1.13 is that Christ, through His sacrifice by destroying death, by destroying the power of Satan and sin, destroying those, he, he rescued us and conveyed us, God the Father through the Son, conveyed us to the kingdom of his dear Son. And says, now, you're no longer going to have Satan as your father, God is your father. Satan's not going to control, you're going to be part, you're not going to be a child of his, you're going to be a child of mine. And so, he has conveyed us. He has made us part of the kingdom, but then close out, but he's also made us priests to his God and Father. Priests, what? Old Testament? Old Testament, you had to be born into the right family to be a priest. But here, he has rescued us. He has, he has made us his, part of his kingdom. And, and he has given us the great privilege of being a priest. I mean, a priest. Why? Because we stand in Christ's righteousness. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. Again, the priestly office established in the Old Testament was by hereditary only. The only members were of Aaron's family. And yet, Peter tells us about us that we are a holy priesthood. Verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I mean, he calls this a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. That's what we call the priesthood of the believer. When was the last time any of you came to me to confess your sin? Never. You don't come to me, right? You go directly to him. What gave you the right to do that? You're children of God. And as such, 
Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That word boldly is confident. We can come boldly to the Father because we have a relationship with the Father. That's why Jesus said, you know, our Father. He says, don't don't think of God as your judge. Even as your shepherd, think of God as your Father because that's what he is. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Let me tell you, in the, in the Old Testament and the New, you never went to a throne without doing this. And if your head was ever higher than the king's, it no longer was there. So when he says you come confidently, boldly, to the throne of grace, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because you have a relationship with the Father. And you have the right and you have the privilege because of the blood of Christ to do that, right? And I trust with, yes, you love me, you washed me, you liberated me, you set me free, you forgave me, you made me part of your family, you made me part of your kingdom, you have given me the great privilege to be a priest, to pray, to communicate with God, with the Trinity, And that's what we come to celebrate right now. So let's bow our heads. Prepare our... Let me close with some hard candy truth that you can savor. You know what I mean by that? Like hard candy. Kids crunch it. Adults savor it. Probably partly because we don't have the best teeth. (laughs) He loved us and continues to love us. By the way, some of you have not felt a human's love, perhaps maybe ever, but God loved us and continues to love us. And because of his love for us, sent his son, he died in our place. He is then able to wash us He is able to liberate us from sin, from the penalty of sin, from the presence of sin, but now, right now, the power of sin. But he has liberated us. And he has made us to be part of his kingdom. By the way, it's because he loved us that he sacrificed himself for us and is able to wash us and liberate us. He didn't didn't expect us to wash ourselves and then he loved us. That's the point. Sequence is very important. He loved us first, right? And he washed us and made us part of his family and we're part of his kingdom and now we're even priests unto his father. We can call him father. We can call God father. I mean, those are marvelous truths. And no wonder John at the end of that verse, and I didn't read it earlier, to him, that's Christ, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, can you imagine John after, I mean, to him be the glory, to him be the power. Age to age, and the word amen means so be it. I give heartily, hearty approval. And by the way, when you give hearty approval to truth, you're also committing yourself to that truth. Can you say that? Could you say that last part in your own life? In your own life, can you say, to Jesus Christ be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can you say that? Amen?
I trust you can. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for, the, for all that you have accomplished through your Son. And may we continue to give him glory and power and dominion. Father, I pray that our lives would reflect these truths for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.